Thank you, Lori and Cornell. Beautiful. In fact, let's pray that prayer with them right now. Oh, God. As Lori just sang, Cornell played. That's our prayer. Refine us. Do whatever it takes, Holy Father. A generation at last. A last generation. This is it. Please, instruct us. Teach us this morning now in Holy Scripture. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I need to unburden my heart with you this morning. A heart that is saddened twice over. I came home Tuesday evening after visiting Israel and Mili Mufune and their family. The sudden and tragic death of their little eight-year-old Nellie on Monday evening. You can understand, or maybe we can understand, has, has, has left that family utterly devastated. And I could only share my tears with theirs. What do you say? You can't, there, there are no words at all. I went home Tuesday night, went down to my study alone, and I just sat there and brooded for a while. And I'm thinking to myself, how does God take this? I mean, it's not just one family. Do you know what? Every six days, a million people on this planet die. A million funerals every six days. And I'm thinking to myself, do you suppose that God's own heart breaks as well for every single one of those? Do you suppose God, God himself is torn apart by this insanity more than you and I are? Do you suppose God longs for a generation to rise up? that with moral authority will speak truth to power and sin and apathy, a generation that will rise up and prepare a final generation for the soon return of Christ. Don't you suppose Jesus longs to come back today? Huh? I don't know how many more Mufunes God can take. But my heart is saddened twice over today because of a new book that was published just a few weeks ago. I have it right here. And I suppose that in some circles this book represents about the best of evangelical scholarship that there is. Christianity Today reviewed the book with these words, an excellent guide to ecumenical strides already taken, end quote. A book that naively but distressingly papers over 488 years that have gone by since last week in the Protestant Reformation. Title of the book, Is the Reformation Over? It's written by two authors, noted evangelical scholar Mark Knoll, once a lecturer on our campus just a few, few winters ago, teaches at Wheaton College, co-authored with uh, Carolyn Nystrom. In answer to their posed question, is the Reformation over? A startling answer. In terms of the church, they say, in terms of the church, no, not yet. But in terms of theology, the Reformation is over. I'm going to read it to you. Listen to this. 
Yet in its official teachings, which are found most recently in the documents of the Second Vatican Council and the Catholic Catechism. Now I'm going to put the words on the screen. You can follow from here on. The Roman Catholic Church now articulates positions on salvation, even on justification by faith, that are closer to the main teachings of the 16th century Protestant Reformation than are the beliefs of many Protestants, indeed of many evangelical Protestants. Wow. Read on. Strange as it may seem... To put it this way, the ECT documents, the Evangelicals and Catholics together, a series of papers written in the late 90s, 90s and early 2000s, showing that they have much more in common. Strange as it may seem to put it this way, the ECT documents present what can only be called a classically orthodox depiction of Christian salvation, primarily because they emphasize and build on these official Catholic teachings. These are two Protestant writers. And then they make this conclusion. Let me put it on the screen for you. If it is true, as once was repeated frequently by Protestants, conscious of their anchorage in Martin Luther or John Calvin, that, and then there's a whole line in Latin. I'm going to skip that line in Latin because then they go on and give it in English. If it is true that Protestants have held to this tenet that justification is the article on which the church stands or falls, then the Reformation is over, end quote i.e. the reason for Martin Luther's breakaway 488 years ago last week. It's gone now. Don't have to leave anymore. My heart is not only startled by such an appeal, but I'm going to tell you what, I am saddened today. Saddened. I realize, look, I realize that it is prophetically inevitable that what that young German monk Martin Luther launched when he nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. Remember that? Our little boy, i got to tell you this, our little boy, Kirk, came home from school one day. He was so excited. He said, Daddy, we learned all about Martin Luther today and how he nailed up the 95 species to the door. <laughs> well, there's, there's, it, they were species of sorts, but there was those the theses. He nails them up to the Wittenberg door. door. That's, that's 488 years ago last week. I realized that prophetically it's inevitable that the Reformation will eventually be retracted and disassembled before the return of Christ. Come on. Revelation 12, Revelation 13 are, are clear. I understand that. However, I am saddened by the quiet and in some quarters totally ignored ascendancy of that retraction. Just... Let it bring it on. Who cares? I opened the South Bend Tribune paper, the newspaper this week. I opened it. And on page two, I saw a picture. Let me put a picture on the screen for you right now. Take a look at that picture. This last Monday, Pope Benedict XVI received a delegation of Lutheran clergy headed by the Reverend Mark, Mark Hansen, president of the Lutheran World Federation, the largest union of Lutherans in the world. From an Italian news agency, I downloaded the Pope's address to those Lutherans. And let me, let me put a line up there from that address. As we prepare to mark the 500th anniversary of the events of 1517. Has something changed? As we now prepare together to celebrate what happened in 1517. Something doesn't seem right. As we now prepare, we should intensify our efforts to understand more deeply what we have in common and what divides us, as well as the gifts we have to offer each other. By persevering in this journey, we pray that the face of Christ may shine ever more brightly in His disciples in order that all may be one so that the world may believe. Hey, look at guys, why am I sharing this with you this Sabbath? Why am I talking about human pain and the ongoing reality of human suffering in the context of an apocalyptic fulfillment? Do you suppose, come on, do you suppose that God is passionate 
about raising up a generation of moral leaders with a moral authority of Holy Scripture who can speak truth to power, speak truth to sin, who can speak truth to apathy, even within our community of faith. Because we struggle with apathy. All things go on as they have from the fathers. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Are you sleeping? Do you suppose that God is hoping you and I would be that generation so that the story of the Mufunes might one day come to an end? Open your Bible, please, with me to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. I want to look at a definition of what God has called us to be. Moral giants in a land of pygmies. Daniel chapter 3. Take a look at this. I didn't know that... Look, I did not know that Saddam Hussein was alive and well long before he was ever born. And yet I found him. I found him in the Bible. A spitting image of the man in another Iraqi leader. Get this. Who, just like Saddam Hussein, loved to construct an image of himself and erect it in the heart of his city. Only the heart of his city is not Baghdad. The heart of his city is Babylon. In fact, they are spitted, spit, spitting images of each other. We, we, we went on the web to Google. We wanted to find a picture of Nebuchadnezzar and Saddam Hussein. And look, we found them both. <laughs> Take a look at that, will you? I was hoping we could find... <laughs> I, I was hoping we could find a photograph. But I don't know. They must not have had uh, photographers around back then. So all we got is that artist's picture. Two Iraqi leaders, two impetuous potentates who on a dime can change their mind and have you executed on a whim as it happened right here in Daniel 3. Daniel 3. I'm sitting up here talking. I haven't even found it yet. Daniel 3. I'm going to be in the New International Version. Whatever Bible you have, that's fine. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can take, pull the one out in the pew rack in front of you and that page number would be page 597. Got a Bible? Strings? Help them out now. All right. Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. I'll read it real loud so you can hear. That be okay? Can you hear me back here? All right. Daniel chapter 3. I'm in the New International Version. Take a look at this, guys. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That would be today's Iraq, folks. That image, by the way, is only 20 feet shorter than the Statue of Liberty. We're talking about a huge image. Skinny, like an obelisk, probably. It was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And before you're, before you're real hard on Nebuchadnezzar, may I remind you that his uh, 18th cousin, 500 times removed, was also very fond of putting images all over Baghdad of himself. So let's not be too hard on Nebuchadnezzar. Saddam Hussein did the same thing. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, you know what that dream? That boy, that boy, he told me that I'm the head of gold and then there's all these other empires before the end of time. I'm, 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 I'm changing the game plan. I'm going to be gold from the tip of the head all the way down to the toes of the bottom. I'm going to be me all the way through to the end. Jack Dukan, my friend, professor of uh, Hebrew over here at the Theological Seminary, he's written a book called Secrets of Daniel. And Jack says, hey, listen, I want to tell you something. He really is thinking that because eight times in chapter 3, Daniel intentionally uses an Aramaic word. Hakim, it means to set up. In fact, we just read it. He set up this image. Eight times it appears in chapter 3. The last time it appears is in chapter 2, verse 44, where it says, And God at the end of time will set up an eternal kingdom. And so Nebuchadnezzar is saying, Hey, I'm going to set up one of those kingdoms for myself. Whoa. 
Man has always dreamed of ruling forever. Although, as Jacques Chirac and George Bush have discovered lately, your political fortunes can change literally overnight, and there will be no lasting rule for president or potentate or Nebuchadnezzar. All right, verse 2. Here we go. He, that would be Nebuchadnezzar, then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. There it is, verse 3. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Hit the pause button right there, guys. Did you notice this? Three verses. We're only three verses into this great story, and already three times Daniel has identified the image as the image Nebuchadnezzar set up. In fact, if you'll mark them there, nine times in this one chapter as if to reinforce the sheer folly of a human system that sets itself up against Almighty God. Mm. A system that we will yet meet before Earth's history runs out. A system that will command the worship of the world. A system we have been warned about from the very beginning. You're in this story. If you're a young adult today, or not so young, you are in this story. Which player are you? You figure it out. Go to verse 4. And then the herald loudly proclaimed. Okay, here comes the announcement now. This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. Verse 5. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music. Wow, those are great instruments. We've had a bunch of them right here. As soon as you hear... All kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Note it carefully, ladies and gentlemen. Note it very prayerfully, please. One day, another potentate from another Babylon will rise up and command the world to worship his image, its image, their image. One day. Deja vu all over again. It'll happen. You know what? It would, have seemed, it would have seemed preposterous a few months ago until this year of unnatural, natural disasters have forced both the rich and the poor nations of earth to their knees. And get this, in a time of crisis, apparently, ecological crisis, economical crisis, political crisis, social crisis, moral crisis. In a time of crisis, the unthinkable is suddenly palatable. Never would have thought of doing it before. Now I'll do it. I'll do it. And government officials and people alike, commoners, can be conjoined in dictated worship or at least mandated allegiance. Daniel 3 is proof enough, by the way, and Jack Dukan is right. Babylon has never tolerated diversity. And she never will. Nope. You can have all the public dialogues. You can have all the personal audiences ad nauseum. But Babylon will not change. As those who have sued for peace too late have found out. Come on, read the story. It's in the Bible. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they had heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here's the question. When the command goes forth one day, for you to worship as you are commanded, all right? Just think through this with me, hypothetically. 
The command goes forth. What moral authority will you use to establish your position, whatever that position is? And what moral platform will you take your stand? I'm talking about the young adults who said, oh, pastor, please, please preach to us about moral accountability. Tell us about moral authority. I'm talking about you. What platform, upon what platform will you stand? I'm talking about a faculty. I tell you what, we have such a, we have such a gifted faculty here, a hundred different subjects grasped. What moral authority will you have? Hmm? I'm talking about all of us. I'm talking about this book right here. What do you know about this book? Come on, can, can I just get heart to heart now? What do you know about this book? If a reporter stuck a microphone in your face and then shoved a Bible in your hand, he says, hey, hey, I understand you have some convictions. I want you to tell me here why it is you have those convictions. What would you say? Could you say something? Or what if you didn't have the book at all? And somebody says, stand up there and tell me why it is you believe what you believe. Could you articulate the moral authority for your convictions? Could you? And if not, now here's the, here, I'm being very personal now. If not, what are you waiting for? Huh? Come on. What are you waiting for? The earth to get a little worse? Is that it? I mean, come on. What are we waiting for? Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. It's for that reason we have plunged this new year into the memorization of the Bible. The Protestant Reformation was ignited 488 years ago last week because somebody had the chutzpah and the guts to take a moral stand based on Bible truth. 488 years later, the story is going to happen all over again. What moral authority will you use to defend your position or will you have no position at all? Martin could only stand up because Martin had already gone down deep into the Word of God. You will never stand up for something you don't have down. I wish you'd write that down. I wish you'd write that line down. Would you pull the uh, study guide? There's got to be a study guide in your worship bulletin today. Thank you, ushers, for uh, making sure. If you didn't get a study guide, hold it up. All those quotations I shared with you a moment ago, you can have them all. Go home and brood over them. Hold your hand up. Those of you watching on television. And by the way, I want to make sure everybody in this uh, orchestra gets a study guide. So hold, if you don't have a study guide, hold your hand up. We'll make sure you get it. And I want to say to those of you watching right now, let's put the website on the screen. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. This particular series is called Hid in My Heart. Click on that series and then click on to today's teaching, Moral Giants in a Land of Pygmies. All right, moral giants in a land of pygmies. You click on there and it'll say study guide. Click study guide and you will get the same study guide. So grab that study guide and let's, get, let, let, let's move into it. I, I want you to write that line down. All right, ushers, can I get some uh, study guides, please? Donnie, can I get some study guides for the, uh, for the uh, orchestra as well, please? You just go ahead and move on up there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just... Uh, step forward on this next line. Would you please jot it down? This line is crucial. Jot it down, please. You will never stand up 
for something you don't have down. You will never stand up for something you don't have down. Do you have God's Word down deep in your heart? Do you? Do you? What are you waiting for? Christmas? You don't have long to wait. Buy yourself a new Bible. I'm serious. Get serious. Get serious. You will not stand up for that which you do not have down. Let's go to verse 8. The story goes on. At this, at this time. Okay, so everybody bows down. Everybody bows down to that image. The whole plane is flat. Except... Here we go, verse 8. I love this story. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Now drop down to the punchline, verse 12. You see, there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, that's been the problem with Sabbatarians from the get-go. Sabbatarians have always been countercultural. They don't fit in. They stick out like sore thumbs. They march to the beat of a different drummer. It was no different then, and today it will be no different as well. You stick out. Oh, king, oh, potentate. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. Won't compromise. If they're alone in a crowd... Alone in a crowd, they're willing to stand up and say, Ah, guys, 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 I cannot do that. I'm not going with you. Count me out. I am not going. Alone on a dormitory wing. Alone. They'll stand up and say, Do we? I'm not. I cannot. They march to the beat of a different drummer. The divine drummer who's saying, Phew. I'll surely get a generation before time ends. You're it. You can go flat on your face. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, Hey, guys, you know, this, this, is, this is something else, man. <laughs> if you notice, everybody else is down. You know, I'm going to tie my shoes right now. I'll get these things tied. Hey, get, your, get down here. Let's work on our sandals right now. We're not bowing down to the image. We're just kind of, you know, straighten your socks up. Yeah, that's it. Just stay down. When that music's over, whoa, that was great. They could have been a piece of cake to just go with the flow and ride with the tide you kidding those three boys they're just boys young adults stand ramrod stiff i'll not bow down and boy when the whole plane is flat three guys standing up sore sore thumbs and the complaint goes in oh king told you get rid of them they won't bow down to this image. Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to happen again. Look at the screen at the Apocalypse. Revelation chapter 13, verse 14. And he ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. You ever wonder where that image metaphor came from? It came straight out of Daniel 3. And he ordered them, and he was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. My dear friends, young and old, if you don't know what you stand for, you will fall for anything, especially, especially a death decree. I mean, come on. Why would you give your life for something you don't for the life of you remember? Why would you give your life for it? I'm not dying for that. We think I'm nuts. 
Please. I wish you'd write this down. Thy word have I hid. You might have memorized every other word in that verse, but would you get the word hid? Thy word have I hid in my heart. Psalm 119, verse 11. It is for that reason we have plunged into the memorization of the Bible this new year. The Protestant Reformation ignited 488 years ago because somebody had the courage to stand up for the moral authority of, write it down, Bible truth. Bible truth. Somebody knew his Bible. And that's why he had the guts to take on an entire global system. One man. You know how old he was? 32 years old. 32 how old are you? Don't tell me. You're old enough. You're old enough. I love the ending of this story. Isn't this great? Look at verse 16. So these guys are brought in. Okay, the three boys are brought in. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. O king Nebuchadnezzar. What's the matter for you boys? Why didn't you bow down? Here comes their answer. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do, not, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. I'm not scared. If I'm standing for God, I have nothing to be afraid of. The, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And by the way, King, He will rescue us. And also, by the way, King, if He does not rescue us and we burn to toast, we will not bow down. We will not worship this image you have asked us to. You have commanded us to. We will not. Wow. Pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, you know what? Hey, you know why they did so well in their final exam? Because they had passed the quizzes that preceded the exam. That's why. Had a big quiz. They had a big quiz in chapter 1 of Daniel. One-question quiz. Don't you just hate those one-question quizzes? I mean, it's everything's right on that one question. You get it right, it's 100%. You get it wrong, it's zero. They had a one-question quiz in chapter 1. Here was the question. Shall we be obedient to the health code of God's Word? True or false? Mark it down. You get one question. Wow. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people think healthful living is no big deal. Hey, guys, trust me. If these boys had failed the quiz in chapter 1, there would have been no final exam in chapter 3. You never would have heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You never would have had that bedtime story as long as you lived. Never, never, never. They had to have the quiz. And they had to pass the quiz before the final could come. Now, I happen to live... I happen to live in a community that gives a lot of lip service to healthful living. I have here in my hands the latest issue of National Geographic magazine. The latest issue. Had to go down to Barnes & Noble and pay $5 for it. Why, Dwight? Why are you so big on that magazine? Because it's the cover story. The Secrets of Living Long. And they found out three groups of people on earth. In Sardinia, Italy. Studied researchers did that group. Found another group in Okinawa, Japan, where I've been. Studied that group. And then they went to a place called Loma Linda, California and found a group of people who call themselves Seventh-day Adventists. And they said, why is it you people live four to ten years longer than the rest of America? Let me read it to you. Oh, I like this little picture. They, listen to this. They got a picture of this lady. Can you see this? Where's that camera? Can you see this? All right, get, get, get in just a little bit. Can you see her? 
She's pumping gas. Do you know do you know how old she is? There you go. Do you know how old she is? She's 100 years old. She's a Seventh-day Adventist. She just got her license test passed and she's renewed for another five years. Help us. Help us. Help us, please. Oh, my. Last year, last, I'm reading now, Loma Linda, California. Last year when she turned 100, Marge Jedden renewed her driver's license for another five. But what truly keeps her going, she says, is her Christian faith. She and other Seventh-day Adventists who avoid junk food and caffeine what? What? Are you serious? You people do that? No junk food? No caffeine? Ah, oh, they've got to be talking about, uh, there's got to be another group they're thinking about. And that's something. And that's something. The researchers said, you know what? These people that are living to 100 have kissed off junk food and kissed off caffeine. We must want to die younger. Maybe that's it. And then what do they write here? And in Loma Linda, researchers studied a group of Seventh-day Adventists who rank among America's longevity all-stars, produce a high rate of centenarians, suffer a fraction of the diseases that commonly kill people in other parts of the developed world, and enjoy, <clears throat> pardon me, more healthy years of life, end quote. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me just share a secret with you, all right? You can take this home with you. This is a secret. The whole purpose of God's health code is not so much to elongate our lives and get us on the cover of an international magazine, all right? The whole purpose of the health code is not to elongate our lives as it is to enervate our minds and embolden our hearts to live radically obedient lives in allegiance to God, no matter what society says, no matter what the world is doing, to be able to stand up like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, I will not bend my knees to you. That's the whole purpose. That's the whole purpose. It's nothing to do with longevity. It's to have the guts backed up by a finely tuned body that says you can stand there. Don't, don't, you, don't you give an inch, boy. I don't care what that, I don't care what your roommate, I don't care, I don't care what that, I don't care what they're doing. You hold that line and you hold it for me. You don't move. You do it for me. That's what it's for. A mind unclogged. A heart that beats without drug-induced highs. That's what it means. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is clear. Some of you act as if you think you can slough off this quiz of healthful living and still pass the final exam in the end. My friend, you had better think again. Again. You say, oh, Dwight, I've seen some of the adults around here. Well, don't you follow the adults. I'm serious, because there are adults here who have compromised and sold short this health code and who, with an in-your-face, an in-your-face attitude, go around with their mugs, go around with their sweets and say, hey, what's the problem? Don't you follow them. Don't you follow them. You follow the one Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego followed. You follow the God who gave the health code of Scripture. And you stand tall. Quit following those who have gone before you. And point, fasten your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great law of life. Would you write this down, please? 
in order to pass the final. You need to be passing the quizzes. Write that down, please. Oh, I left one out. The purpose of the quiz. There you go. The purpose. Sorry, upstairs. The purpose of the quiz is to prepare you for the final. Write that down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They passed the quiz. And now now you can write down the great law of life. In order to pass the final, you need to be passing the quizzes. And by the way, by the way, the quizzes are not all on health. Some of them are on sex. You heard of that? They're on sex. Some of the quizzes are on honesty, integrity, transparency. Some of the quizzes are on pride, ego, hubris, intellectual superiority. We all have our quizzes, folks. We all have the quizzes. The point is, until you deal with the quiz, you won't be brought to the final. You won't be brought to the final. I'm spared the embarrassment that way. God loves me too much. I said, boy, you keep working on that quiz. I'll bring it to you again. You won't know when it's coming. I'll just keep bringing it to you. Tell you, get it straight, Dwight. Get it straight. Say, oh, Pastor, come on. Where's, where, is, is God going to get me through this? Oh, of course He's going to get you through this. Take a look at this. Desire of Ages, the classic on the life of Christ. You've got to fill this in. Day by day, God instructs His children. By the circumstances of the daily life, He's preparing them to act their part on that wider stage. Now, listen to me, young adults especially. God has a huge dream for your life. A huge dream for your life. One day, you're going to be a key player on His wider stage. But right now, He has you all hidden in a corner. He has you all protected. And He's just giving you these little tiny quizzes. He's giving you quizzes because he's trying, to, he's trying to strengthen you for the final coming. He's strengthening you for the final coming. Don't you, get, don't you get discouraged and say, you know, my life's nothing. I mean, after I get out of Andrews, what's it going to be? I'm going to be a little obscure, this or that. No, God is qu- equipping you and preparing you. Anyway, they will act their part on that wider stage to which His providence has appointed them. And jot this down. It is the issue of the daily. There it is. It is the issue of the daily test that determines their victory or defeat in life's great crisis. Because, folks, moral accountability is no different than academic accountability. It's how you handle the little stuff that determines how you do with the big one. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And they didn't sin against him. And you know the story. You know the story. I'm not going to elongate that story. You know that Nebuchadnezzar is so fierce. Keep thinking Saddam Hussein. Keep thinking Saddam Hussein. He is so furious that anybody's standing up to him that the, that the Hebrew reads in, uh, in verse 19, the Hebrew reads that his face, actually his visage changed. I knew a man once, to tell you the truth, I knew a man once who when he got angry, I'm telling you, it was a different face on that head. When you get angry, your face changes. In my face. And so the command is given. You know they're wrapped up. They're, they're tied up. Trousers, tunics, it says, caps, the whole nine yards, and three boys are thrown. Some scholars believe that it was actually a hole in the ground, that they're thrown into this hole. But Nebuchadnezzar, in his fury, has commanded that the flame be seven times hotter. How do you make a flame seven times hotter? I don't know, but they make it hotter. And when they throw the three boys in, the guards who step up, and they don't see this mirage. You know when you see a mirage against the horizon? They just see. They don't realize that that is seared white heat. And when they throw the boys in, they happen to breathe. And all guards are dead, seared lungs. And the boys fall in. Look, when you're tied hands and feet, you, know, you don't land on your feet. 
They roll in the flames. They roll over. And Nebuchadnezzar, in a moment of utter shock, cries, hey, wait a minute. Didn't we throw in three? Oh, king, live forever. We threw in three. Then why? Look at verse 25. Then why? I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like he's of the gods himself. Ah, I love that story. I say, thank you, Jesus. In the flame, in the flame and the crucible of the final exam, you will never, never be alone. You will pass it. Look at this. Isaiah chapter 43. The words of God. 43 verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's why. In fact, would you write this down, please? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, hey, you stand for me. I will stand by you. Write it down. You stand for me. I will stand by you. Even if it means you stand all alone. The whole crowd is bowing down. The whole wing is bowing down. The whole office team is bowing down. The whole senior leadership team is bowing down. But if you stand for me, you will never stand alone. I will stand for every woman who stands for me. I will stand by every boy, every young adult, every aged patriarch who stands for me. You don't have to be afraid. You do not have to fear the Babylon that is still ahead. Don't be afraid. You got Jesus, don't you? Huh? Do you have Jesus? Don't be afraid. I want to end with this quotation. A century ago, these words were written in great controversy. You'll have to fill it in. In our time, there is a wide departure from the Scriptures, doctrines, and precepts. And there is a need of, of a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible, and the Bible only. Write that in, please. Return to the Bible as the only rule of faith and duty. The anti-Christian power which the protesters, these German princes aspires, rejected, is now with renewed vigor seeking to reestablish its lost supremacy. The same unswerving adherence to the Word of God manifested at that crisis of the Reformation by Luther and the German princes is the only hope of reform today. To catch that, guys? Unswerving adherence to the Word of God. Unswerving because the Reformation, you thought it was over. No, 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 no. They're wrong. They are wrong. The Reformation is not over. It's not over. You're it. You're the Reformer. The moral giant that God is begging to stand up where you work, where you live, where you survive for Christ. It's not over. We need a new generation of moral giants for the Reformation just ahead. Men, women, children, teenagers, young adults, you name it, who are unafraid, unashamed to stand for God, even in the face of death. Moral giants. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, I've got to sit down. But I want to make an invitation here. I want to make an invitation to the young adults who are here. The invitation is for all of us. But I'm especially burdened about a new generation. If you're 
in your 30s or younger, and you're willing to place, put your life on the line for the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Holy God, you can take me. I don't feel like much of a moral leader. I have failed you in the past. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will become what you already have called me to be through your power. If you're willing to put your life on the line for God and become a moral leader in this generation, and you're 30 or younger, in your 30s or younger, I'd like to invite you to stand to your feet right now, wherever you are, wherever you are. And by standing to your feet, you're not saying anything to me, but you are saying to God, Holy God, if Babylon comes again and the image is erected and the world is commanded, Oh God, I wish to be a moral leader for you and stand even if I must stand all alone. God bless you. God bless you. I want you to lock this moment in your mind. Just remember Daniel 3. You stood. Your time is coming. The invitation is already on the way. Take seriously the quizzes. Please, I beg of you, take seriously the quizzes now. Because when the final exam comes, you're it. Everything heaven has dreamed of will be in you and your stance for the kingdom of Christ. Let us pray. Oh, God, I praise you for these. Oh, Father, look at them. These are yours. These are your Shadrachs, Meshachs, and Abednego's men and women, young adults who are ready by your grace. Oh, Father, we feel so inadequate. Our lives are messed up. we got stuff to still deal with. Are you sure you want fallen moral leaders like us? Do we hear Jesus say back to us, My grace is sufficient for you. I can use you, boy. I can use you, girl, if you will give me your life right now. I'll take care of everything. I'll handle the past. I'll cleanse the present. And I will empower you for the future. Oh, Jesus, say the word that needs to be said in his heart. Say the word that needs to be said in her heart. And let these know they made the right choice today. And when the, con- when, when the hour strikes and Babylon steps forward and the command is issued, you will worship this image. Oh, Father, these are your heroes. These are your giants. Use them that day to testify to the world why they will not bow down. I praise you for them. Seal this moment. I humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen.